If I were to accept myself, it would mean graduating to my full adult self, embracing what I see. And that's an assignment still pending with a due date of a lifetime. What I see is a young woman full of ambition, yet too afraid to push. I see an adoptee with a voice that's ready for people to hear, yet hesitant to share it. I see anxiety and depression that was passed down through the womb. I see a highly emotional, intelligent woman fighting to be understood. If I were to fully accept myself, it would mean taking the good with the bad, the pretty with the ugly. It would mean separating the fantasy from the reality. And that, my friends, is hard to do. It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? If my next guest were my daughter, I would be beaming with pride. I'm always excited to chat with her generation because I learned so much from them. Her third given name that happened upon her adoption is Maya. And when I learned that she was named after one of my favorite poets, I remembered a quote by her. Dr. Maya Angelou said, I can be changed by what happens to me but I refuse to be reduced by it. Today you will hear from Maya Holmes. She is intelligent, articulate, and more than willing to participate in our community in thoughtful, life-giving ways. I met her this year in the Adoptive Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly, for which she joins other writers twice a week on Tuesdays for Hone Your Voice, on Thursdays for Honor Your Voice. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and grew up with an older brother who is also an adopted person with no biological connection to her. Maya and I have many things in common despite our age difference. She's a same-race domestic adoptee, studying psychology in college, enjoys art, and interested in creatively writing her memoir for publication one day. Allow me to introduce you to a young woman as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. We communicate often, and I love how, like me, she is full of questions. Maya is brave enough to seek the answers early in life, whenever and wherever possible. I discover from her new ways of looking at old patterns, though she's less than half my age. Her insight and perspective just might give you something to think about long after you listen to her words. Maya, I'm so glad to have this conversation with you today, and I want to thank you for agreeing to do this for the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm I'm doing well. I'm feeling great and so excited to be here. Um, I'm honored that you asked me to be one of your guests, so I'm excited for this conversation. Yes, thank you. So you were born and raised in St. Louis, which isn't far from my hometown, and you're currently residing there? That's right. Yes. And 
you know, we got to talk a couple of times before now. And so there's so much to your story. And there's so many perspectives that you have that I think would be of interest to the audience. So I wasn't really sure where to start, but (laughs) I do know that it's really a privilege to talk to the younger generation because you are Mm -hmm. young enough to be my daughter. And when, (laughs) when I hear from younger adoptees, I always learn so much. And I think each generation has a lot to share and receive from one another. So it's, uh, it, it is really a special time for me to be able to, to, to hang out with your age group. So thank you for that. Yes, yes. No, that's always exciting because I feel as though generations, differences in generations, we really need to come together and we need to hear each other's perspectives and embrace them. You know, because we have differences, but I think we also have similarities as well. So thank you. Yeah. And I know a little bit about your story. And mm-hmm. usually I ask, you know, where do you want to start and however much you want to share? And yet I I got the opportunity to listen to two podcasts that you were a guest on, one of them being The Adoptee Next Door, hosted by Angela Tucker, and the mm-hmm. other being Black to the Beginning, hosted by Sandria and Dr. Sam. And mm-hmm. I just was in awe of how articulate you are and smart. Like, you have a lot of insight as you share just a part of what you've been through. Mm-hmm. So one of the mm-hmm. things that, that stood out to me was a question, I believe it was on Black to the Beginning, Mm-hmm. that was posed and it was what does it feel like to be adopted and your answer i believe it was it's sad to know i am a part of another family that i don't know mm, yeah and yeah. i just sat with that because i too agree that 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 is what it feels like to me to be adopted mm-hmm. 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 yeah i i would say you know when people ask that question it's it's like in your mind, you're like, oh, it's, that's easy to answer. But when you really think about it, you're like, wait a minute, that is hard to answer. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that we as adoptees have many feelings, you know, and it's, I always say it comes in waves, right? So some days I may not even have any feelings about my adoption. And then some days they just come in and, you know, I spend the whole day thinking about it. But for me, Being that I was the same race domestic adoptee and my adoptive parents, you know, looked like me because they had the same skin color. It was often me trying to fight sometimes to be remembered as an adoptee because a lot of times people would say, oh, you know, you look like your mom, you know, or why do you always have to say you're adopted? Well, it's it's not just my story. It's my identity. And, you know, I think sometimes black people, we don't (laughs) we don't talk about our our stories. We don't really express our our true feelings enough. And so for me, being adopted is just really a mixture of things. And and, um, especially now that I'm in reunion, I would say that I definitely have ups and downs and (laughs) it's, it's, it's really crazy. It's really crazy for sure. Yeah. 
And so another thing you shared on one of those podcasts is that you don't see your story anywhere. Mm -hmm. And once I learned parts of your story, I Mm -hmm. totally understood Mm -hmm. what you meant. And maybe maybe we can start there, like sharing your story, your adoption journey. Yeah, sure. So I was adopted at three months. I had spent time in foster care prior to that. And my birth mother was addicted to drugs and my birth father was as well. I was actually an afterbirth adoption. And so I don't think it was in her plans when she was pregnant with me to necessarily uh, give me up. It was when I was born that I think she kind of came to her senses maybe and realized, you know, okay, I can't do this. And then plus two, I didn't have my father present. He was absent. Like I said, I spent three months in foster care. I was adopted through an agency. It was a Lutheran agency here in St. Louis. After I spent my few months in foster care, I was, you know, adopted by my adoptive parents. I had had a brother who was older than me. He was also adopted through a different agency. Um, We're not biologically related. I will say that my adoptive parents were very good about allowing me to ask questions around my adoption. You know, they were open to me searching one day. And I really credit that, or they themselves credit that to all the training that they received prior to actually adopting me. Uh, Because the agency required all prospective adoptive parents to go through workshops listen to lectures. They had to do home studies. So they really trained them on, okay, you are interested in adopting a child. Here are some of the things that may come up. And my parents really listened to that. And I, I really appreciate that because it, it think that made things easier for me in terms of searching one day. And that made things easier in terms of knowing that I had a support system for my adoptive parents. Yeah, sounds like they were extremely supportive. I I did not have that. And I can only imagine that that helps. That's very helpful. Yeah. I greatly appreciate that because I hear a lot of adoptees say that their adoptive parents weren't supportive. I will say one thing, though, as a same-race adoptee, not necessarily for my adoptive parents, but maybe others in my family, they would sometimes wonder, you know, why I needed to say the fact that I was adopted or, you know, why that was really a thing to talk about. And I had to explain that just like we identify as African-American, you know, it's not just a part of our stories, it's our identities. You know, Mm -hmm. just like people who... I don't know, like identify as LGBTQ or, you know, why is it that when we talk about adoption, it's, it has to be questioned. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. As a same race, black domestic adoptee too, I, I can recall where family members, particularly extended family members Mm -hmm. didn't quite understand why it was important. Like, cause I fit in, I looked pretty much like my adoptive family and so it was mm-hmm. like why does that have to be something that we bring up and mm-hmm. like you right. you're telling me that yeah it's a part of my identity so why wouldn't I bring it up you know like why <laughs> yeah like why wouldn't I right. want to talk about it 
Yeah, yeah. Let's be honest, you know, because you're a Black woman as well, is that in the Black community, if it's something negative, we don't really want to touch it. You know, we don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's too painful sometimes. Right. right. For our culture, because it kind of reminds me of uh, the fact that as an enslaved people at one time, our our ancestors really struggled with the whole being separated from mm-hmm. one another. And I think it's kind of still in us, like the whole generational thing mm-hmm. is passed down. Mm-hmm. I think it's in our bodies, it's stored somewhere, this whole idea mm-hmm. that you would ever be separated from your tribe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that accounts for why a lot of times black people don't want to, to really talk about the fact that someone in the family couldn't stay or, or couldn't, right. yeah, couldn't be with the family. Right. So there, there are a lot of things I think that account for why black culture doesn't really maybe want to like mm-hmm. really spend a lot of time and energy on mm-hmm. the subject, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's part mm-hmm. of it. You know, speaking of of generational things, you know, when I decided to do my search, which was back in 2020, um, right, really at the height of the pandemic. I mean, at this point, we were, you know, everybody was at home quarantining. I had decided, well, you know what? I have time in my life. I'm finally, you know, sort of sitting still. <laughs> right. And, and I said, well, let me go ahead and do this. So I decided to connect with a lady that I know. Um, she's a social worker and she specifically helps adoptee search. So she advised me to request my original birth certificate because I believe two years prior in the state of Missouri, they finally passed the law that adoptees could request that information, which I find it ridiculous that we even had to, you know, <laughs> get that in, in, in writing, but I decided to do that. And I would say it took about two months and I finally got the original birth certificate. So I was, you know, nervous and excited and, you know, all the things. Yeah. <laughs> and when I decided to reach out, I wrote a letter to the address that I saw on the birth certificate. And that was a risk, right? Because this was many years ago. So I was like, well, they might not even be at that address. <laughs> but luckily, my um, biological grandmother still lived there. And so I wrote a letter and it, it eventually got to her. And we met. You met your maternal grandmother. Yeah, I met my maternal grandmother. I met my um, maternal siblings. And then I met my birth mother, too. All at the same time. At the same time, but over the course of different days and months, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So like I, you know, I met my siblings and my birth mother. We all had dinner a few days after we had initially talked. And then I met my maternal grandmother several months later because I had gone to her house and we sat down and talked. And then eventually I met my aunts and then some cousins. So it was over the course of several months. And what I've walked into was, or what I saw was generational trauma, right? I met my birth mother and I say she's the product of generational trauma. Mm. And that's not to be negative. It's just in the black culture, 
you know, we have a lot of pain and we have a lot to deal with that we don't deal with. And so unfortunately, sometimes we turn to substances. And, you know, my birth mother, her mother wasn't raised by her mother, right? And then by the time my maternal grandmother had kids, you know, she was absent. Mm. And then my birth mother was absent. So in that lineage, right, there's a pattern of mothers being absent. Right. By the time I came along, you know, my birth mother was really in a bad situation because she had a hard life. Okay. I, you know, and I, and that, and that's unfortunate. You know, when I see my birth mother, I see a woman who is a good woman, but she just didn't have the support and she didn't have love. She didn't have love. And that perspective is kind of needed to understand why I had to be adopted in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because when you don't have a foundation and when you don't know how to be a mother, it's, it's hard to figure it out. Sure. <laughs> some people do, some people do, and some people don't. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this already, but I'm the youngest child of both my biological parents. No, and you, I really, you hadn't mentioned it, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I really struggled knowing that because I was like, why me? Yeah. You know, usually, usually you think about the oldest or maybe the second oldest being adopted. But I said, why the baby? You know, because your birth mom had four children before you were born. That's right. And she kept them. Yeah, she kept them. And they went, well, three of the four went with their father. And my oldest sister was raised by our grandmother. Mm -hmm. I say, why did I, you know, why didn't I belong or why wasn't I able to stay? And as I've kind of been in reunion, I say, well, maybe it was because it was just so dysfunctional at that point by the time I was born that there, I couldn't have stayed, right? Mm -hmm. If I did, I would have probably ended up in foster care. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes say if I had stayed, I would have ended up where I'm at now, right? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, when I learned from you that that was the case, I thought, that is hard. It's hard to yeah. process your siblings' day, they were older, and then mm -hmm. your birth mom was older, right? Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. she had you, you know, she wasn't a teenager. She wasn't, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. She was Um, She was 35 when she yeah. had me. Yeah, she was 35. I think you mentioned in, the, in my podcast with Sandria and Dr. Sam that I don't see my story reflected because I don't hear a lot of stories about people coming from drug situations. I also don't hear people talking about their birth mother being a little bit older mm -hmm. because what I've often heard is like, oh, my mother was 17 or, oh, she was in college. Right. But <laughs> my birth mother was a full grown adult, you know, by the time she had me. Now, when she had my oldest sister, she was a teenager, but when I came along, she was 35. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things you shared with me was you want to be able to be angry mm -hmm. at this time. Like there's a need to allow yourself to be angry first. And and I totally mm -hmm. agree. And it reminded me 
mm-hmm. of the five stages of grief, anger mm-hmm. being one of them, and mm-hmm. uh, depression being another. And I'm always like, I feel better hearing anger over depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I totally agree that mm-hmm. as adoptees process mm-hmm. their stories, mm-hmm. that yeah, there's grief, of course, in our our mm-hmm. experience and anger makes a lot of sense. Right. So I know my birth father's side as well. I met my birth father several months after my birth mother's family. One of my cousins that I had met um, on my birth father's side had said to me, because she listened to my one of my podcasts as well, and she's a bit older than me. And she said, you know, one day you'll have to realize that your parents did the best they can do. And I said, you're right. You know, but it's hard to do that when in your heart and in your mind, you don't feel that they did the best they can do. Mm -hmm. And you have to be angry first because, you know, you do have to get to a point in your life where you're like, it is what it is. And, you know, your parents did what they could do with the resources they had. Absolutely. But when you're young and when your needs haven't been met, and you're trying to get your needs met <laughs> from other people that really can't provide it for you, then you have to go through the emotions of anger, sadness, depression in order to get, to graduate, if you will, to the mindset of, okay, they did the best they could do. I know that both of my parents did what they could do with where they were at, but my needs weren't met. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm grown now, I'm still a little girl looking for the validation that I probably won't get because they weren't validated. Right. So I know that ideally, you know, we have to get to the mindset of, you know, it is what it is and it was the best that it could be, but to get there, you have to go through the journey. You have to do the work and I'm willing to do the work. You sure are. You You sure are. You are really doing the work. I am. (laughs) And I'm so proud of you. You know, we met in Adoptee Voices, the writing group created by Uh Sarah Easterly. And I mean, the moment I heard you speak, I thought she's doing the work. Like she's showing up because I think you're on both nights, um, Tuesdays Uh and Thursdays. And and just all the other things that you've been a part of in such a short period of time. We're talking like two years, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. And I think a lot of times our birth family and adoptive family, for that matter, are not doing the work. And I, and I think right. that for me, I have sat with my anger because that part is very disheartening because mm-hmm. I too feel as if I am doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so when we're in reunion or we're going to our family members mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. sharing with them the work we're doing and how mm-hmm. it's difficult, like it's nothing easy about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we would like maybe them to do the work, too. That's so, <laughs> so we can all like <laughs> lean know. into healing. Right. So I, I, I know, know. I, I've been angry that that often uh-huh. is not the case. Yeah, yeah. And as I've been in reunion, I think it's difficult, especially when I look at my birth father's side, because he has a big family as well. He had five siblings, so it was six of them all together. But 
they are so family oriented and so you know we love each other and we accept everyone and when i hear them say those things i say but you didn't accept me i feel as though they're not as maybe aware of the things that they say when i'm in their presence that can be triggering Mm -hmm. because in my mind there were five people that could have stepped in and said you know what our brother is maybe struggling right now but he has a daughter who needs us right now Mm. and let's step in yeah i call that fighting for us and yeah, I sit with that sometimes. Nobody in my first family wanted to fight for me. Like, right? Yeah, that that yeah feels very heavy. Yeah, yeah, and and I know that they love me, you know, and I and I love that, you know. I know that they accept me, and I know that I'm a part of the family now. But as we said, that when people don't do the work. Sometimes they just want to get to the finish line. But before we get to the finish line, there's a lot in between the start and the finish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, well said. And Black people, we forget the middle part. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess this is a good time for me to just say a little bit, or we can talk a little bit about all Black people not being the same. Uh And I'm going to tell just a really quick story I had a boyfriend, soon would be my husband, years ago. We're talking in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he was born a day before me, so May mm-hmm. 2nd of 64. And I was born May 3rd of 64. His mother was 16. My mother was 16 and pregnant. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. on another part of the south side of Chicago, another family was thinking exactly the opposite. And so I just use that example to suggest in the same period of time, two mm-hmm. black families saw things very differently. And it suggests there, there are examples all over of how black people are very different. And, and I think it's important for people to know we don't need to be as black people lumped into one category. I think mm-hmm. that can cause us to be left behind, so to speak, like mm-hmm. they're good. Like we talked mm-hmm in previous conversations that if you were adopted as a black child by a black family, then you're good, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. <laughs> and, and <laughs> that the opportunities afforded to other adoptees who mm-hmm. are in same race families, mm-hmm. we don't get them. They don't seem yeah. to necessarily be available to, to the same degree. Right. Right. So when I started to do my search, I also, started to actively engage or maybe be start to look for the adoption community. And specifically, it was maybe in a social media presence. And so one thing that I immediately noticed was that there were many Angela Tuckers, right, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But there weren't, or I wasn't finding any Jennifer Diangos <laughs> or... <laughs> people with stories of mine, you know, and, and that is isolating. But also when you said that we tend to, in in the black community be lumped together, I also think that there is this notion that if you are born and then you're adopted into same race families. And so other words that your racial identity is reflected that you're okay. Right. And 
what we have to remember is there's so much more than to, to adoption than just race. I had to actively look and try to find other same race adoptees. But when I did Angela Tucker's podcast, I was fortunate enough to meet two black ladies, which is that Black to the Beginning podcast of Sandria and Dr. Sam. They were the first people that I met that got it. Yeah. And, and, I, and I thought that was really transparent of yeah. Angela Tucker to say that she really hadn't thought about same race. Right. Yeah. Right. And I appreciate her honesty. Yeah. Because, as I'm sure you might have noticed, is that we don't get the workshops and the panels and the <laughs> things that I, I've been noticing. So and true. It's it's crazy, but it's like, you know, we we have our struggles too. Our adoption mosaic and our <laughs> you know. So someone has to create it and maybe one day we will. Yeah. I know you are going to do amazing things in the community because you you already are. I've had a chance to listen to your words, the pieces you've written. And the writing group have just been amazing, and and I look forward to you sharing them on the episode. I think that the adoptee movement that's going on right now, the younger generation is really stepping up. Mm -hmm. You know, I was nowhere near where you are when I was 26, like nowhere near. And, (laughs) and, um, you know, probably the last 12 years of being better connected to the community. It's good. It's never too late. But just to see young adoptees start early, like really hitting the pavement, running, Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, I'm going to be a part of things improving and Mm -hmm. giving my part. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think millennials, (laughs) as we say, get the reputation for questioning things. Like I remember speaking with someone that's in my parents' generation, which I think they're baby boomers. They said the difference between you and I is that when someone said something to us or gave something to us, we just accepted it. You guys question it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's good to accept things and sometimes you have to challenge things. I think you have to have a healthy balance between both. And I think that's what millennials and further generations are, are going to try to do, right? It's not that we just question everything. We just don't take things at face value. Right. Yeah. That's a good yeah. way to be. And you're so quick. You all are quick studies. Yeah. Like, like you just catch on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I learned so much from your generation. And I think mm-hmm. that one of the things that I truly loved the other day, I think when we were talking the last time, mm-hmm. I asked you the question, what has been the most rewarding thing or meaningful thing about being better connected to the adoption community? Mm-hmm. And I loved when you said, well, yeah, I like that question, but I also like the question, what has been the most challenging? And I have never oh, asked a guest that's the only a millennial would come up with that. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, I said, I got to add that question because surely uh-huh. there could be mm-hmm. challenging things about being connected. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, do you want to speak about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Yes, that's millennials. We are definitely analytical. <laughs> we will analyze something and say, wait a minute, you know, this should be A, B, and C, not right. just A. <laughs> 
Well, I'll start with the rewarding part. So the adoption community, one thing that's rewarding about it is that you can walk into a support group or a writing group or a panel and everybody knows how you feel. Like it's not a situation where you you have to A, justify why you feel the way you feel and B, explain mm-hmm. why, you know, or tell people I'm hurt or I'm sad or I you know, struggle with the fact that I was relinquished, right? We all have a common feeling and a common sort of mindset, regardless of our race, regardless of our stories. We all need something. You know, we all feel like there's a missing piece. And so one thing that's rewarding is to finally be around people who get it. Right. And just naturally get it. And... I will say that I have loved that and I definitely wish that I had sort of been actively looking for that when I was younger and particularly when I was a teenager. You know, I think that everybody needs not just to see themselves represented, but I think they also need to know that there are people that get you and that you don't have to explain yourself. Because I think as Black people, especially, we have to do a lot of explaining ourselves. And so I will say it was definitely refreshing to not have to do that. The challenge is just the lack of visibility of same-race adoptees. And that could be, a, a, you know, many things. There could be many reasons why that is. It could be that maybe Black same-race adoptees don't know that there are things out there for them. It could be that we are afraid to share our stories. Or it could be that we really don't know that we're adopted or that we haven't really sat down and thought about what that means. And so I I definitely don't want people in the, in the adoption community to think that Black people don't adopt because we do. Mm-hmm. It's just not on a public platform like white adoption is. Mm-hmm. So I definitely would say that's been a challenge is kind of feeling isolated. Right. I'm glad yeah. you shared that. Yeah, I know when we talked about it in previous conversations, I was like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. like that narrative needs to be out there. Yeah, we definitely need visibility. And it can't be the responsibility of one or two or three people, right? Because that's too heavy. You, know, you, you really have to develop a community. And sometimes that takes a while and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just sort of finding the right people to start building that community. And for us, it may not be a social media presence, right? It could be something different, and that's okay, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things you shared with me that I sat with for a while is you having three different names. Mm, Yeah. Like, I I have two. I have the name given at birth and the name given Mm -hmm. at adoption, and then I thought, wow, three, because mm-hmm. names are so important. They're, mm-hmm. they're powerful, I think, pieces of our, us or representations of us. What are your thoughts or feelings mm-hmm. about your three different names? Yeah, yeah. So when I was born, my mother, my birth mother named me Precious. And then when I was in foster care, my foster care parents named me Sydney. And then my name now, which is Maya, my adoptive parents gave me. Mm-hmm. I really hadn't thought too deep into that until I started therapy. And one thing 
that I sort of came to the realization as I was in one of my therapy sessions. As I said, I had been three different people before I could walk. And I was telling my therapist, you know, it always seems like I've had to move or it seems like I've always kind of been, you know, going back and forth between different worlds. And she said, well, Maya, first of all, you're adopted. And second of all, you were in two different environments before you got to your permanent one. And I said, you know what? You're right. Mm-hmm. And she said, even though you were a baby, your body remembers that. And that right there is a common sort of theme that I think all adoptees feel, but we may not realize it. So one of the, the terms I was hearing was sort of coming out of the fog. I hadn't heard that term. I'm being honest. I hadn't heard that term until about two years ago. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I'm starting to come out of the fog in terms of realizing that, you know, I had a prenatal environment then I had a foster care environment and then finally my adoptive environment. And the three names that come with that is like, I've been three different people and no wonder I struggle with identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and know, it's stored therapist, in your body yeah. somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My therapist looked at me and she's like, Maya, of course you're going to struggle with who you are because you've been three different people. <laughs> yeah. Three different environments, three different. Yep. And then the separation piece. So, yep. Because I, I, too, was in foster care for two years, mm-hmm. and I just think about, it wouldn't be called them relinquishing me, but mm-hmm. I just picture being separated, we'll say, right. um, for a second time, just like you. And so y- your body is keeping score. I do believe yep. it does. So even if we cannot recall something, we do remember. It's somewhere in us. Right, right. Because I remember my adoptive parents. My mom said she was nervous that I would be fussy and crying because I wouldn't recognize them. And when they finally got me, she said, I didn't cry. I didn't fuss. Different family members would hold me and I wouldn't do anything. And I said, that was probably because, not because I wasn't scared or you know, feeling some type of way. It could have just been that I was used to that. Mm -hmm. And I think my adoptive parents kind of, that allowed them to get comfortable because they were like, she's not that, because I wasn't a fussy baby, just in general. I was an easy baby. Mm -hmm. And I think they misinterpreted the easiness for she's okay. Right. Um, Because I think there is a a misconception that kids who've been in foster care or kids that are being adopted, they're going to be, you know, fussy and, you know, sort of hard to calm down. But I wasn't that type. Therefore, I think that opened the door for people to think that I was okay, And that would then carry on into the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. People my whole life have said, you are okay because I present well (laughs) because. Right. I, I don't come off as somebody that has issues. <laughs> right, yeah. Same here. I present very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. like you were saying two nights ago, it is what's going on inside, you know, right. that's most important. If we're presenting well, people have no idea of what, what's really going on. Right, yeah. right, right. And this is something that I think you and I have both talked about is our adoptive parents. Um, being older, mm-hmm. 
And the reason I'm bringing that up too is because the fact that my adoptive parents were a little older, they were 40 and 41, and they had already had my brother, they might have been looking at, okay, these are the signs that you look for to see if a baby's all right. So in other words, what I'm saying is when you have older parents or more experienced parents, if you will, then they might be saying, okay, well, I don't see the signs. So then <laughs> they're okay. Right. Everything's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, it's not that I was severely traumatized, but I, I don't think that it should have been assumed that I wasn't traumatized at all. Right. Um, because as a baby, you can't verbalize that. And like I said, I was a very quiet baby. I, I did not cry that much. Sure, it was because I was in a loving, nurturing environment, of course. But maybe, too, I was afraid to cry. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you were a- adapting right. in such a way that, you know, you aren't a problem. Like, I'm not a problem. <laughs> like, exactly. you know, I exactly. think, yeah, I think I did a lot of that. And, you know, I'll be okay mm-hmm. here. You don't, you don't mm-hmm. have to let me go. That mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, it's complicated, as we've all said in the community. This issue of relinquishment and adoption mm-hmm. is just really a big subject. And right. and there's so many things that we're still learning. Yeah, because I'm learning kind of what you were saying, that like what all happened to me. Yeah, like I went from mm-hmm. this home, this smelling this and hearing these Um, sounds to hearing something very different because my foster family it was five kids you know Mm -hmm. like like big kids like okay you running around like it was I just imagine it was loud you know it was four boys and one girl and and then I go to this other environment the final place which is really quiet it's just two older parents old enough Uh to be my grandparents uh-huh. I just I can only imagine. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, uh-huh. My oh, environments yeah. are so different. And how long am I staying in this right. one? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. of that. Uh huh. Uh huh. And there's there's this funny story that my adoptive mother told me. She said, um, my foster mother and father. Every time we had breakfast, when breakfast was done. My foster mother would go clean the dishes and then my foster dad would sit me on his lap and we would watch Barney. And she said they did that every morning. My foster mother told my adoptive mother that and she said she loves Barney. <laughs> and my mother, my adoptive mother kind of said, yeah, whatever. She, she's a baby. She doesn't know. Mm. And then fast forward, you know, several months later, my adoptive parents, I don't know what we were doing. I guess we were sitting around and I started to fuss. And they couldn't figure out why I was fussing, but they turned the channel to Barney and I stopped. (laughs) And my mother was like, I don't think this girl was going to like Barney, but my body remembered that. Yes, absolutely. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always thought that was funny, you know. Yeah, I was three months at this time when I was adopted from my foster care environment. When I was about 10 months old, they were having a Christmas party. And my foster parents were there and she said, my adoptive mother said, I wouldn't go to anybody else in the room, but my foster mother. Mm. I wouldn't allow anybody to hold me or touch me, but my foster mother. And again, that's an example of my body remembered. Right. Yep. I so believe that. It was Paul Sunderland's YouTube video that just spoke to me when he talks about 
you may not recall, but you do remember. And yep. and yep. I yeah, I've just been sitting with a lot of experiences in the past that make me wonder what what is what did my body do with that? Like where is it where is it stored? How has it been managed through the years? Because mm-hmm. you know I'm a lot older than you, so mm-hmm. I yeah I've had many many more years to be with this whatever in my body <laughs> that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I I just have a couple more questions and. Uh-huh. One that uh, I want to ask you is how do you feel when it comes to belonging or fitting in with your adoptive family? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. So, you know, I was reading a book by Brene Brown. I don't know if you're familiar with her. I am very much. Um, I, I think she's a fantastic speaker. Yeah. Um, but she said one line, or, or was it maybe a quote? And she said, "There's a difference between belonging and fitting in." Yes. That has kind of been a question or or feeling that I've had my whole life because I think sometimes we can fit in, but we don't feel that we belong. So mm-hmm. to your question, I definitely fit in with my adoptive family, and. I guess I could say I feel that I belong there as well. But a part of me is like, do I belong here? You Mm -hmm. know, and not because of anything that my adoptive parents did wrong, per se. But it's that feeling that it's like there's always somewhere else where I belong (laughs) or somewhere else that I should be. Mm -hmm. And there's also, you know, the, the thought that I belong to another woman as well. Right. And so. Yes, I absolutely do fit into my adoptive family and and they would even say that I belong and I would too, but I would also say I belong elsewhere. Right. So it, that has been a hard thing to navigate because again, I've always felt split because it's like my adoptive parents are my parents. They're the ones that did the hard work. They're the ones that raised me, but there's also another piece there. And so it was always hard to just fully say, I belong here, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah, that that's um, a big question for me, belonging versus fitting in. Mm-hmm. And my six-word adoption memoir was just that uh, I seek belonging versus fitting in today. Mm-hmm. I revisit that quite often during the day, even like wherever I'm at, I'm like, do I belong here or mm-hmm. am I just fitting in? You know, like, like yeah. I'm constantly asking myself that. And yeah. and today I want to belong. And I, I think as an adoptee, I have really just been fitting in. And yeah. and I will say that even in reunion, I, I yeah. for the most part, I just am fitting in. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But I seek today, I seek belonging. And I have to say, I really feel like I belong in the adoption Mm -hmm. community. I don't feel like I'm fitting in. I Mm. feel like when I show up in spaces, particularly when it's only adoptees, Mm -hmm. I don't feel the least bit guarded. I feel like I'm accepted. Like, yeah, like whatever comes out of my mouth. It's like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. 
right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I would say I definitely feel that I belong in the adoption community. And that and that is the first time in my life that I have felt yeah. <laughs> of, of, that I belong in a community. Um, but when it comes to my birth family, I'm going to be honest, I don't feel that I fit in or belong. Mm. And that's because I've been away from them my whole life, that it's an unfamiliar environment, yes, but also there's a lot of differences, I think, in personality Mm -hmm. and mindset. And so when there's a discrepancy there, sometimes it's hard to feel like you fit in. Right. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a person, I don't just want to fit in or blend in. I want to feel like I really have a seat at the table. Mm Mm-hmm. To be honest, I don't know that I've felt that yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's you being very honest. I wish I felt um, a strong sense of belonging in my adoptive family. I know they love me. I love them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same with my birth family. And I think mm-hmm. that may be just a part of being an adoptee that we learn to live with. I don't know if we ever get over that, but mm-hmm. we learn mm-hmm. to live with that. Is, I guess it's just um, a part of our experience that we, we are be kind of between two places. Because right. when you don't have history, and I'm thinking of my birth family, when you don't have history, like four decades, mm-hmm. my brother is two years younger than me. And though we mm-hmm. have a really great relationship now, it's been like 10 years. However, I'm just picturing when I, as his big sister, right? Like when he was mm-hmm. growing up and... And all of the things that families go through, the ups and downs, we, we don't have that. You know, right. we don't. He shares with me what's happened. I share with him what's happened to me, but we weren't together. And no matter whose name he mentions, it's just me listening to the story. I wasn't there. So right. Right. Yeah, it's difficult to feel a sense of belonging when you don't yeah. have history. That's right. And that right there is um, Adoption 101. (laughs) (laughs) That's Adoption 101, I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share? Ooh, I think we covered a lot. We did good, didn't we? Yeah, we should have. <laughs> I had fun. I had fun. I had fun too. This has been great. And I just mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking the time out because I know you're working and yeah. you have a lot of moving parts going on. And just to um, to spend time with me for this purpose is, is just a joy. So thank you. Yeah. I am so honored again that you asked me to be a part of this and you know, I think sharing stories are important, not just for ourselves, right, but for others who maybe don't feel they have a right to share their stories. Mm. You know, we're, we're doing this for everybody. I'm going to share two pieces that I've written. First is called Mira, and it's a poem I wrote. And the second piece is going to be a letter that I wrote to my younger self. So here's the first piece titled Mira. Seeing my birth mother was the first time I saw some of my biological traits. A reflection in the mirror. Flat feet, slim frame, and long arms. Brown skin, brown eyes, and kinky hair. 
Our smiles expanding from cheek to cheek, our faces resembling an oval shape. I guess you can say I saw me. Our voices contrast, hers loud and boisterous, mine quiet and meek. Our hearts filled with the same love, but one heart got nurtured and the other broken. Our actions both well-intentioned, but one acts on impulse and the other on reason. I cry, she hides. If I were to accept myself, it would mean graduating to my full adult self, embracing what I see. And that's an assignment still pending with a due date of a lifetime. What I see is a young woman full of ambition, yet too afraid to push. I see an adoptee with a voice that's ready for people to hear, yet hesitant to share it. I see anxiety and depression that was passed down through the womb. I see a highly emotional, intelligent woman fighting to be understood. If I were to fully accept myself, it would mean taking the good with the bad, the pretty with the ugly. It would mean separating the fantasy from the reality. And that, my friends, is hard to do. Thank you. That was Mirror. Oh, that was beautiful. So much resonated with me, with your words. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the second piece I wrote is a letter to my younger self. In fact, it was the first piece that I wrote in um, one of my writing groups. And so here it goes. Dear Little Maya, April 24th, 1996. This is the day your life ended and started, I guess you could say. It was a day full of laughter, smiles, excitement, tears, hellos, and goodbyes. In one corner of the room stood your foster mother giving one last kiss. And on the other side stood two ecstatic parents awaiting their new baby girl. As a parting gift, your foster mother gave you a stuffed bear with your name monogrammed on it. After the judge finalized your adoption, it was time for your new parents to place you in the car seat and drive home. Pink colored balloons filled the room along with cake decorated with pink icing. Music played throughout the house. This was a day of celebration. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, passing you around as if they were playing a game of catch. Oh, she's beautiful. Man, she's such a quiet baby. Don't you just love how she looks at you? These were some of the many things being said. You will come to learn that this was your gotcha day. The day that everybody but you gained something. Perhaps your blank stares and quiet demeanor were just signs of fear, maybe even sadness, that you were way too young to verbalize. You had no idea of the challenges that lie ahead, the pain and confusion and longing for that pre-birth connection. Little did you know gotcha day would become a reminder of what's missing. It's like trying to find that last piece of the puzzle. Sometimes we find it, sometimes we don't. But little Maya, know one thing. Your life will consist of finding that missing piece and one day you will. But until then, find a community of people like you and that just might be the missing piece. Love your older self. Dear little Maya. Wow. Yes. 
That was so yeah. good. Yeah. And, you know, writing those two pieces, I managed to write them in our <laughs> hour and a half long group. And I always say that when I write, I'm a slow writer and that it takes me a while to get my thoughts and, and run with them. But I think both of those pieces were great foundations for something that I could grow even more. I agree. You know, I'm happy to share it. I'm happy that I got to share it and, you know, that somebody out there will resonate with it. <laughs> yes. And thank you for doing that. Of course, of course. I thank you and uh, I look forward to next time. (laughs) (laughs) Each time I hear Maya speak, I'm in awe of her ability to be precise in her speech. She seems to effortlessly convey what she's come to understand about her adoption journey. If you want to hear more of what she has to say, I invite you to listen to the Black to the Beginning podcast hosted by Sandria and Dr. Samantha. And Angela Tucker's podcast, The Adoptee Next Door. Maya's willingness to be transparent and vulnerable at an early age is the ability to have a jump start on the subject of adoption. I wonder whether using her approach would have helped me during the 1990s when I was in my 20s. I'm certain that my future self would have deeply appreciated that throughout the decades that followed. I'm thrilled she shared with you two of her pieces, Mira and a letter to little Maya. It only seemed fair that you get to hear her express her beautiful talent as a writer. Thank you, Maya, for sharing so much during our time together. You have shed light on the complexity of being a same-race domestic adoptee. You gave me more to ponder about my experience in a family that I seem to nicely fit into because we looked alike. I believe that adoptees like you and me will start to be recognized more because we're speaking up about what our unique situation looks like to us. I was happy to have this conversation with you because you put words to what I've been feeling about my journey of relinquishment. I look forward to many more chats with you and witnessing the enormous contributions to our community that you'll continue to make as you keep showing up to help yourself and others. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit JenniferDianeGhoston.com. Thank you so much for being here.